No one pronounced Jerusalem's lot dead on the morning of February 6th. No one knew it was. By and large, the town, not knowing it was dead, would go off to their jobs with no inkling of what lay ahead. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, Stephen King Retrospective. Yeah, it looks like a fucking party. Join Garrett. You can do nothing against the master. Matt. Who, me? And Adam. I don't want your blood. <sighs> but we want your flesh. As they review all adaptations of King's second novel, Salem's Lot. You kids ought to know better than to be speeding around Jerusalem's lot at night. All the way through the brand new version produced by James Wan and directed by Gary Doberman. I'm not leaving. Continue coming back as the boys continue looking at all the popular authors' on-screen adaptations in publication order. I'd love to. So get away from that window. Look at me, teacher. The Salem's Lot Retrospective begins now. Do yourself a favor. Stay clear. A return to Salem's Lot. Released September 11th, 1987, there is no budget, no box office. This is the definition of a shaky sequel to a movie we just reviewed last week. I am joined by my two partners in this huge Stephen King retrospective. First, the one and only Matthew Goudreau. Matt, how are you, sir? Yeah, he had to wake me up from my own coffin to make me do this show. (laughs) And the one and only... Adam Bunch. Adam, how are you doing, sir? Still drained of all blood, life, and sitting here in a coffin. All right, a return to Salem's Lot. Where do we start with this? You know what, Matt? You had a hell of a cliffhanger last week. I want to ask you right away, what is your fascination with Larry Cohen? Because you were really talking about him at the end of last week's podcast. I think Larry Cohen is one of the great, sadly no longer with us, B-movie auteurs. And what I mean by that is he made... Movies that were unapologetically, if not bad, look, he made what I call junk food cinema, where there's not a lot of nutritional value. Ironically, one of his movies is The Stuff, which kind of, yeah. if you've seen that movie, what I'm saying is even more hilarious as far as a play on words. But he was always true to himself and what he wanted to make. And I always appreciate those kind of maverick people who don't feel like they have to cash a paycheck and do a Marvel movie or one of these big franchise movies, even though he kind of did this here. But he very much does his own thing with this. And all of his movies are his. And what I mean by that is they all have something to say, whether it's a a social statement, a commentary on consumerism, which plays into the stuff and this to a degree, that it's also the tradition of this is one of those sequels in name only in a lot of ways. And he had an alchemy all himself. It was unpretentious. But he also never tried to hide the fact that he wasn't a great filmmaker because there's some clumsy shots, there's some bad editing. But I think that makes him feel more inviting, where it's like, this is who I am as a filmmaker, take it or leave it. And he made some movies that I really love. I like the stuff a lot. I think It's Alive, first one. I can't say the same for the sequels. Even some of the stuff he's written, like he did uh, the sequel to Maniac Cop, which is uh, yeah. awesome. He wrote Black Caesar. So he's he's dabbled in all these 
sub pockets of film that are not prestige cinema. And I think for what they are, he did it as well as anybody could. So I appreciate what he stood for. And I'm sad that he's gone because there's not a lot of people who would make something like cue the winged serpent nowadays, or even something like the stuff. If that was made now, they would try to sell it as elevated horror because it has a message behind it. And a 24 would promote it for Oscar campaigns. But that's never really what he wanted to do. The only movie I've seen of his is It's Alive. I rented that as a child because I read about it somewhere. I don't remember exactly where. I shouldn't say a child. I was probably 13, 14 years old. And, Adam, if you've never seen that, it's about a killer baby. And it is as wild. (laughs) You two could attest to that. It is as wild as it seems. Now, Adam, as the newbie to the King retrospective here, the King lore what the hell were you expecting? You heard Matt talk about Larry Cohn here. Had you heard of this man? Had you know exactly what you were getting into? A couple of things. It talked about last week that the idea of a town and vampires and all that is kind of right in my wheelhouse. So the potential, as I mentioned, for something better, for something in there was rife for my interest. Also, Cohen wrote one of my favorite underappreciated movies of the last 20, oh God, it's over 20 years now, in Phone Booth. So, oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I adore that film. So I think the potential was there for an intriguing movie with some really good ideas. And so I at least go into this with, though a hefty amount of skepticism, definitely ready to have my eyes and veins opened for what it could bring. As everything with Mr. Cohn, interesting lead up to this movie. He actually wrote a draft of the script that was rejected by the studio when they were doing the 1979 slot, which we reviewed last week. And the studio at that time said it was one of the worst things they ever read. And he did come out and say in the time since that he did not like vampire movies. Cohn called them tedious. And it's interesting that the studio was like, all right, we want to return to this property. And we want you to do a version of this. Do a script that makes you return to this. Matt, have you heard of anything like that ever in your life? Well, we've talked about in previous shows about directors not being fans of source material or subgenres. Look at both Tim Burton and Brian Singer when it comes to comic books. So I don't think this is unfamiliar territory. What is strange is that Warner Brothers went to Larry Cohen and gave him this offer, which is also fascinating because we're talking mid to late 80s. Had we gotten a lot of the sequels to Stephen King movies or anything of that sort? At this point, no. So going back to it, in name only, and location, doesn't have a lot in common. Like, none of the characters return, and it's a crock of shit that Barlow is on the poster. I know. he is no, not kidding. kidding. Like, that is one of the most egregious examples of false advertising I have ever seen in a release. And my question was, this was not theatrical? Uh, well, it, it went to a few theaters, but nothing nationwide. It did go to a few, though. I love reading that it says it opened at the Cannes Film Market, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the funniest thing. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. also said, for his quote about not liking vampires, he said that he wanted to make... I, I think what he meant... And based on what he did with this movie, he meant vampires as just brainless monsters. He literally said, I want to revamp 
his words, the vampire legend in and of itself by making them the most persecuted race of Europe. Which is also kind of a commentary on the mid-80s. We're in the thick of Fright Night and Lost Boys, Near Dark. We were getting some more contemporary takes on vampires that were not 8,000 versions of Dracula. So the timing of this coming out in the thick of that makes some sense. What does not make sense is calling this a return to Salem's Lot because this is even totally and... From a visual standpoint, it doesn't look like the same town. This is one of the worst examples of, oh, we're going to make this a sequel, but have little to do with the original as possible. And it's also half the runtime. Yeah, exactly. Which was an uptick for Adam there. This isn't all amateurs, though. We've reviewed this cinematographer before, Matt. Uh, This is Daniel Pearl. uh, Mr. Pearl. Yeah, Daniel Pearl's back. He did Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He did Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. He's the guy who's worked. Yeah, he did it. It's Alive 3. He didn't even do that. Uh-huh. Although I think Larry Cohen did all three. I think he directed all three of the It's Alive movies. I don't think he directed I think he wrote them. I'm not sure if he directed them. And for the record, we did have Creepshow 2 come out this same year. So they were starting to sequelize King, but not really too much. And not surprisingly, King hasn't been out in the press. He, I don't think he's ever mentioned this movie at all in, in interviews. You guys know me. I have a lot of... King interviews at my disposal and things, and I, I've never heard one review. Even the big encyclopedia I have, which covered everything up through 1993, did not mention this movie at all, which is interesting. So, all right, boys, we have done the buildup. What do you say we dive into the Return to Sam's Lot? And I got to say right now, this is going to be one of the most interesting plot summaries we've ever done. We open up with a credit sequence set to a Goblin-style opening theme. And then we cut to a swamp as some kind of ritual is going on, and we meet Joe, who wants the whole thing recorded. And Matt, if we wanted to see a movie that is done in lower budget than last week's movie, which was a TV movie, here we have this being filmed in someone's backyard trying to pass it off as some third world country. (laughs) This is the Larry Cohn I love. uh, This is the antithesis of John Hammond's I Spared No Expense. It's, I want to pay no expenses to make this as, I'll say, resourceful as possible. I don't want to say cheap. I love how this looks like discount cannibal holocaust, which in and of itself was was borderline, you know, that was documentarian style. Yeah. And and here, I thought of that, and I thought of Pirates 2 when they go to that island. Yeah, I thought of that as well. Is that this movie's not afraid to be sleazy, because there's plenty of gore when he gets his heart taken out. This is post-Temple of Doom. And, uh, you know, if you're on that side of the spectrum, you get some nudity, which I was very yeah. surprised to see in, in this. The first, if if I didn't have the opening credits that I went through, I would have thought that I was watching the wrong movie with the way this opens up and what is going on here. I had no idea what and where and why we were starting this. And then three minutes in, I realized that this is the equivalent of Salem's Lot putting on a production of Salem's Lot with the quality (laughs) performances we are going to get from our not-quite-ready-for-prime-time TV players here. As this is being filmed, they are interrupted by gunshots, and Joe is pissed that everything was just all screwed up. They are told that frantic telegraphs are being sent about his son who seems to be in trouble. So as the cameraman starts telling Joe that he hopes his son is nothing like him, Joe says there's something in his eye and then proceeds to punch him in the face, which I fucking loved. Joe tells his wife on the phone that he is coming back, and we cut to a plane landing, and we find out pretty quick that he is no longer married. 
And the wife he was talking to on the phone is actually married to someone else now. And by the way, Matt, we've just we've reviewed this woman as well. I was surprised that we didn't see more of Ronnie Blakely like we did in Nightmare on Street Part 1. But here she is, and this is pretty much a cameo, right? A uh, cameo, and she's also a very manipulative bitch to orchestrate all this just for an intervention. To pass off the kid like a joint, basically. <laughs> this whole setup is so... Look, this movie, as a first-time viewing... It was not predictable, I'll say that. <laughs> uh, it was definitely it was definitely something. It was not what I was expecting, but it also kind of was, knowing Larry Cohen, because I saw starring Michael Moriarty, which is the, yes. the big calling card for a lot of his stuff. But this whole opening, I was like, okay, this is something we've seen before. Stephen King, so we get to have disconnect between parents and broken mm-hmm. families. So that felt very Kingish. But just the level of depth, you orchestrate the fact that they make it sound like the son is dying on his proverbial deathbed. He has to leave South America, get a flight back, only to be told, yeah, it was all a ruse. We just need you to take care of him. Never mind. Your son. Your son's just a dick. Yeah, your son's just a dick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting to him here in a bit. But, Adam, what were you thinking about this setup? I, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing here. This was just... I'm, I'm, we're five minutes in. <laughs> Dude, going through these Louisiana swamps, I guess, that are supposed to be freaking South Africa somewhere, you know, the African jungle, Congo, freaking to show up at this airport, quote-unquote airport, filmed in, I don't know, I'm assuming a bus terminal. Um <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, the way that these two are manipulating Dad, I don't know why Dad would even go along with it at this point. Okay, they got to play a plot into it, because otherwise this makes no sense whatsoever. No, this is just the most threadbare ways and reasoning to try to connect something together. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. They tell Joe that they over-exaggerated the situation, which causes Joe to exclaim anger as he was just getting close to the tribes. And it also causes me to think, maybe we don't have the best thespians here to give the performances because the acting here is really bad. But that's true of all Cone films, right, Matt? Yeah, but Michael Moriarty is an acquired taste. He's sort of the discount Christopher Walken in a lot of ways, where he's got a very specific delivery, got a very recognizable cadence. He's also an opposing figure. He's like 6'4", so he's pretty tall on that side. He's a good actor in certain movies. He's one of the main characters in Pale Rider. He was on Law & Order for the longest time. You know, I think he's good, but look, if you go to this movie expecting the Royal Shakespeare Company, you should probably suck out your own blood and go talk to a cow, because you'd probably see a better production there. Oh, wait till we get to whose debut this was. Oh, that's <laughs> that was shocking to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> they say that Joe's son is deeply disturbed, and he might need to be committed to a mental hospital if he doesn't straighten up. So it's up to this deadbeat dad to help him out. He finds their son, who simply says that he's fucked up. <laughs> Kids cussing, because that's always fun. A conversation happens between the two of them, and he says that they can go to either Maine or Peru. (laughs) Which, if I had that choice, I would go to fucking Peru. Like, leave the country. What the fuck? There's no psych wards in Peru, apparently. Apparently. They have another conversation in a cab on their way to buying a car for 1500 bucks, which his son calls a piece of shit with a corroded exhaust system. I like how the son kind of has this whole thing, you know? Like, he, he likes cars, and we're, we're kind of setting him up kind of as a character. Yeah, and his kid's definitely smarter than his father, or at least has more common sense. Yeah, exactly. I get the sense he's actually read a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, depending on... Which version of the script this kid read? Sometimes he does a uh, a decent job at the scene. I mean, it flips. 
to be a completely different character in the next scene and then back and forth. But yeah, you're at the car dealership with about as racist a car dealer as you could possibly go. <laughs> I mean, it's a. Oh God! This, it, it, this is a this is a stereotype that even a poo would be like. Oh, that's a little too far. It it shows that the kids. He's not just an asshole. He's not an idiot, and he's got some brains. It should be said this kid never acted again. Yeah, and I looked at him. I'm like, when he first showed up, I'm like, is that Anthony Michael Hall? Like, <laughs> yeah, Adam was yelling like, "Evil dies tonight" as this movie was ending. <laughs> They head to Maine, Salem's lot specifically, as Jeremy lights up in the car, which causes Jeremy to say, fuck you, and he wishes that he were grown up. Jeremy takes the wheel, because I don't don't know about you, but I would let my 12-year-old son take the wheel here. Yeah, sure would I. I love that this kid checks off all the rebellious 80s kid traits. Yep. This is Stephen King. These are the kids from Stand By Me. They all smoke, or at least a couple of them do. They know how to drive, and they talk more articulately than their parents do. And, man, how about that wardrobe, huh? Oh, this is definitely the 80s. Absolutely. Jeremy takes the wheel as we're hearing Joe talk about his old experiences in Salem's Lot, and they pull up to the gas station that has run out of unleaded gas and soda. No unleaded. (laughs) Leaded only. Wow. The times. <laughs> I know, right? We're hearing noises and whispers from a house about the two newcomers to their town as we cut to Jeremy, who wonders why they couldn't have a nice house. Because it's a Stephen King property. <laughs> <laughs> the house is indeed a dump, and they realize that they're going to have to do slave labor to get it back up to normal. Cops show up, and they wonder about the deed which left Joe the house, which Joe gives up. Jeremy, meanwhile, he wanders through town and comes across a school where we are hearing voices that Jeremy's going to stay, but he's scared off by a janitor who emerges out of nowhere, causing Jeremy to say, this town sucks, which is a bit weird voice. (laughs) 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 Bit weird voice dubbing here. But I gotta say, I'm gonna give a compliment. I think this is a great jump scare. Yeah, I did not see this coming. I literally jumped. I knew something was going to happen, but I was not expecting a blatant jump scare. And then he's got the quietest footsteps because those are some pretty lengthy stairs. And he's the kid's looking down there for a good 10 seconds. So the fact that he was able to walk all the way up the stairs and not make a sound gives him some credit. And I thought they were ghosts, not vampires, because he didn't make much of a sound and he just levitated. I like the setup. I'm not going to lie. At least we know that this town is already like a full-fledged vampire colony, which begs the question, though, that it can't be really tied to the first one since it seemed like they stopped whatever vampire plague was happening when they killed off Barlow. If you're looking for continuity as a direct sequel, this is not the movie for you. Adam, what about you? Are you, are you going with the premise here? I'm going with the premise. That's about the only thing that I got going on. All right. Hey, you got a town full of vampires, and I can kind of tell. I'm like, okay, this time it seems like maybe the town is already overrun. I'm getting an idea because of certain things. This jump scare got me. But any time that somebody's giving a line reading, it's just so bad that it's hard to see this as anything other than, like, a late-night B-movie. Yep, that's pretty much Larry Cohn's work in a nutshell. (laughs) We see a guy standing over someone named Clara Hooper's gravestone as we cut to somebody rising out of a coffin and putting on a pair of glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that happened. (laughs) We see the cops. They bust a set of partying kids who make fun of the town's reputation, and they're told they can't go as the man turns into a vampire and bites them. And if we thought the 1979 Nosferatu effects were iffy last week, how about these 1987 goblin-looking effects, huh? 
Oh, my God. You know, you can tell what time of the year they filmed this, because they obviously went down to Halloween's R Us to get some rubber masks on real quick. Wow, this thing took a dramatic escalation for just deciding that we're going full-blown, violent, bloody, wow. I appreciate the excess. I'm not going to lie. I, I like that they're, they're just... This is basically like an HBO... Expl- not HBO quality, but like one of those after dark movies that you would watch as a 13-year-old because it had blood and boobs. Yeah. Um, and that was exclusively the appeal. But I also don't understand... And, and this is... I'm talking about internal logic in this movie of all things, but we see most of the townspeople are just normal people. I don't even think they spent a lot of money on fan vampire things because you don't see a whole lot of them. <laughs> but then you have some of them that turn into like these giant bat creatures that look like Gary Oldman at the end of Bram Stoker's Dracula if it was made out of paper mache and a stick of glue. It does not look convincing at all, but I kind of appreciate the low budget quality. And I'm going to say hey, this is it's one of the most entertaining movies we have watched in this entire goddamn retrospective thus far. <laughs> Why? Hey, I was drunk when I watched this. I did watch this right after Superman 3 for the record. <laughs> uh, and these, This is an uptake. Yeah, it kept me guessing. Like, I had no idea where this movie was going to go, to be perfectly honest. And it helps that it becomes a different movie every 15 minutes. It does. (laughs) The cops grab the remaining kids as an old woman approaches, sipping blood, and she hides in the church. They find her pretty quick, and there's no help for her as she begs for them to go away, and one of the cops asks another vampire to wipe his mouth. (laughs) Which was awesome. We then see a group of kids feed on two adults. We see that Sherry has escaped, and she runs into Joe and Jeremy's house. She tells them that her friends are dead, and that the whole town killed them. Of course, Jeremy just thinks she's stoned, (laughs) which I think is probably pretty accurate of the way Larry Cohn was in the making of this. They go to the judge's house as they walk in, and Jeremy takes a special liking to Amanda, a.k.a. Tara Reed. I had no idea... That this is where she started. Holy shit, was this a spot of fucking future actress. Wow. I mean, this kid just walked right into Teradice, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> this, wow. I can't believe I didn't know this in advance. <laughs> I really can't. Oh, boy. But she can only get better. She can only be in better films. But <laughs> I don't know if you see what her career track record was. Salem's Lot to Sharknado 5. <laughs> yeah, right. That's about an arc. Josie and the Pussycats. Matt, did you know that Tara Reid was in this? No. And I didn't realize that was her until I saw the credits. You can't. No. You can't really see it, can you? No, it's not like Halo Joe Osment where he's looked the same for 25 years, just taller. I guess puberty hit her like a brick wall. But this is weird. There's elements of this movie, and we kind of talked about this on previous shows, how Stephen King, a lot of the early stuff is a hodgepodge of stuff he would do later. This is the Long Island iced tea of Stephen King movies where we got elements of Salem's Lot, we got a Children of the Corn element with all these this clan of kids that all like walk in tandem. We got freaking this car might as well be Christine. We got yeah. a Nazi vampire Nazis, which is at people. Like, it's crazy how much stuff is just thrown into this movie. And part of it helps keep it unpredictable, but as far as coherence, this is one of the most scatterbrained ones we've ever seen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was tough for me to keep up with it. Absolutely. Like, the way I was taking notes and stuff, I'm like, okay, I thought that went this way. No, it went that way. <laughs> Everything's scattershot in this movie. The physician says the girl looks like she's partaking in illegal substances, and we're hearing about a wedding that they're all invited to. 
Jeremy, letting the wrong head do the talking, agrees to go. Sherry says that she might have dreamt the entire thing as the woman emerges and Sherry is scared to death and they take her in. The judge just simply says that she's theirs now, one of them. I thought this chick was going to like last through the entire movie, like maybe be a foil, but no, they get rid of her pretty quick, don't they? Yeah. Matt, were you expecting her to stick around longer? No, unless you are one of the father and son, there's no room for any other, any other main characters. Yeah, you're right. Joe is told they have run across the oldest race in the world, one that's believed to not exist. All of them there are indeed vampires. We get Sherry. She gets literally sucked dry. That was a crazy scene. As the old woman does her makeup. <laughs> Such a weird... Uh... Adam, I, I gotta ask you. How are you taking in these tonal shifts that go in, in this movie and the way, like Matt said, how scattershot this movie is? You know, maybe if I knew Cohen a little better and knew more what to expect, I would be having a better time and kind of rolling with the campiness of it. But expecting that I was going to get a sequel to Salem's Lot, because that's what I'm being told that this is in its title, I'm confused as a son of a bitch. And every time I think I got a handle and I know which way it's going to go, it decides that it's going to, as we keep mentioning, shift its tone and go from one bad acting performance to another and just have just randomness pop up throughout that I can't walk down a road in this town without feeling like I hit a brick wall. Well, there's only one road. It's just Main Street, basically, in this town because they could only afford four exterior shots and sets. you got the judge's house. you got the Salem's Lot house, which they don't even reference that it was previously owned by vampires. I know. Um, you got the church, and you got the schoolhouse. you got those four locations. And basically nothing else. Joe learns guns are needed by vampires for show, and now Joe is in the position of needing to get his son back. He becomes Mel Gibson and Ransom for the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> he can't seem to find him as he wanders around town, but Jeremy is actually with Amanda, and they enter the wedding mid-session. They sit down and see that the wedding is actually of two kids. Wow. <laughs> I thought the implication was that they've been alive for hundreds of years and they're still in the body of kids. That's how I took it. Okay, okay, that's a way to take it. Because Jeremy has a line later on about staying in his current body if he turns, so... It's a bit icky, nevertheless, but I thought it was routed in some kind of... <laughs> some kind of logic. <laughs> <laughs> nice guess. <laughs> Joe learns everyone is a dairy farmer there. And even though human blood is still the best, they need cow blood as all viruses point to human blood not being very healthy anymore. Great idea. Very 80s thinking, but so, this was what, Twilight? 20 years before Twilight? <laughs> well, it's a couple things. It's the, well, for one thing, I can't believe they blatantly say the word AIDS. Like they, I know. They, they explicitly yeah. say the AIDS virus, which tells you when this movie came out. But I thought this was actually... I don't know if this was the first instance of vampires feeding themselves through other forms of blood, not just... Because these vampires, their played is more sophisticated, which is Cohen kind of commenting on turning vampires into a satire on small-town USA and mass consumerism. It's weird how there are tropes of vampires that the movie makes fun of. Like, they say she's cutting up garlic, and it's not affecting them, and he can look at his own reflection. But they keep some of the classical stuff, like they have a town of Renfields, basically, and they still have to bite people in the neck. So I like that he's both making fun of vampires and doing something different with them. But being dairy farmers makes sense because this movie's got plenty of cheese. 
<laughs> you know what? I'll say this. I can't believe I'm actually agreeing with you, but I am. I like this concept. I like the concept of them having their own society. I like what they're going to do with the Joe character later, what they're going to try to get him to do anyway. I think this is a cool concept. Adam, are you going with the concept at all? Not necessarily the execution, but the concept. Yeah, not milk this idea a little further, but... Um, nice. Yeah, the idea of this, I think, is a good one. I think that there's something to be had with, you know, and there's a quick line. I thought I was going to go into it about what, how is this any different than what you use cows for, that they're raised to be slaughtered. Well, these cows are raised to be fed for the vampires, and they mentioned that they'll replenish their blood in a week, so we can do this over and over. It's sustainative farming, when you think about it. There's a good story there. It... It's so on the surface, though, that you might as well have made them sheep and just not Mm -hmm. been even more blunt about it. And the idea that this screenwriter is trying to get a storyteller to basically rewrite the story of vampirism is a clever idea on the surface. That it's like, we're going to bring you in here so that you could tell a story of us and we're not what you think we are. This had the possibility of saying, as much as the template for vampire goes back to Bram Stoker. It's kind of everything is based on. This was like, let's flip it a little bit. There's creativity and thought process there. Another thing I'll say about this movie, too, is that it doesn't linger. We talked last week about how that 79 movie, there were times when it was just, it kind of dragged a little bit, and it just kind of lingered on shots. This isn't Toby Hooper at the helm here. We are going from scene to scene to scene here in a way that looks like a car chase from a review Matt and I are going to partake in next month, Fast 10. (laughs) Just rapid-fire editing going on here. Yeah, it ends up about as well as a car at the end of that car crash as well, because you start thinking you're going okay, and you're like, huh, I can go with what's going on here. Never mind, we got to flip to something else hella quick. Matt, are you going with the editing here? I'm going with it because every time I blink, it's like they go to a new shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't really have a choice. But I have to say, I was far into this movie than I was expecting Wow. at, at this point. Because I like how it's sort of the thing of like, in Muppet Treasure Island, there's that whole song about how pirates have a bad reputation. And they're basically <laughs> doing that here. Or it's like, yeah, we were persecuted like you guys were. And I love how the reason why they hate churches and crosses is because they were persecuted by Puritans. (laughs) Joe sees garlic being chopped up, and the vampire reflections are actually there. So we're turning some of these cliches on their head here in 1987. And as Adam pointed out, they simply want publicity. As the woman is the same woman that Joe loved as a little boy, and Joe recalls that as being the best part of his childhood. Joe has credibility, and that's what these vampires want. Axel says that he eventually would like Joe to write a religious text that represents them, and this would, again, bring them the credibility that he craves as much as human blood. This, again, is a tremendous concept. I just wish it was done in something that wasn't so lowbrow. And there's a certain charm to this movie, which I'll admit to. But when you have something like this, it kind of makes me angry. It's like, God, I wish it was executed a little better. Matt, you're saying you're going with this more than that? Yeah, well, they, I also have to say they kind of took this whole thing of farming and cultivating. That's a component of the movie Daybreakers that that really oh yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. utilized. I like that movie. If everyone's looking for a cool vampire movie, that's kind of that's a different. great one. Definitely check that out. For for what this is, I mean, look, I even knowing that this is Larry Cohen production, I thought this was just one of those things where he did it because they threw a dump truck full of money at him, which he really didn't. Like it's still his own. And I'm appreciating what he's bringing to it, independent of the source material, which I thought that previous miniseries was decent, but 
even that at three hours didn't go nearly as in-depth as I thought it should. So this is kind of the opposite, where it's shorter, and it's bringing up more fascinating ideas, but not exploring them really beyond just putting them out there. So Axel concludes that they'll need to set Joe's mind to rest. Amanda, meanwhile, she tells Jeremy that she never gets tired as she gets enough sleep, and then she kisses him. Joe sees that Jeremy is actually happy, just as happy as he was when he was his age. Joe is then taken to a room containing Kathy, a woman he had an affair with as a teenager. This brings up a very irky question. Don't they say she was 17? Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Sounds right. Yeah, I just, oh, boy. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think. 14, 15, 17? Yeah, I think I was 14, 15. Yep, never mind. Yeah, sounds right. Jesus. This is a woman he had an affair with as a teenager, and she kisses him. And I love this sex scene because there's exposition being given in voiceover. <laughs> and her mouth isn't even moving. <laughs> oh, it's moving, all right. It's not matching the words. That <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Jeremy kisses Amanda goodbye. Axel is being told that Joe will betray him, and if he can be trusted, he will be his successor. Joe emerges and finds Jeremy and tells them that they need to run. But Jeremy thinks that they don't want to hurt anyone. This kid is like any boy at that age. He will defend this girl until the end because he got some from her. Yup. <laughs> and I am throwing me and my best friend of 30 years in that mix at that age. <laughs> well, Jer in my case, it's like, you know, vampire blood where I tried it once and I'm like, oh, I swore it off forever. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy wants to finish the house, and Joe wonders what's the matter with him. Uh, Joe then he finished the night before. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Joe then starts recording his thoughts on what they've experienced as they get to working on the house, and Joe cuts himself on a saw. He then flat out asks Jeremy if he was laid the night before, which would explain his current rush of energy. <laughs> Jeremy sees this as a chance to do things together as he picks up a drop of Joe's blood and puts it in his mouth. Wow. Cone goes for it, doesn't he, Matt? I mean, he's really going for it here. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think that's that grotesque. It's only a little drop of blood. And he kind of, like, resists it before he actually mm -hmm. drinks it. But this is also a thing where they never outright say if he has actually been fully turned or not. How long does that process take? Because the movie doesn't explain it, I find myself asking those questions. It keeps changing depending on the scene. We're going to get really changed here in a bit. To me, that's one of the only things that felt like it connected to the first one, where it's not an immediate turn that you kind of feel it over a length of time. They head back to the farm right in the middle of feeding time as Jeremy goes to school. And Mrs. Axel tells Joe that Axel himself thinks she has a drinking problem doing due to her preference to human blood. What a brilliant... I'm sorry. I'm not going to say anything in this movie is brilliant, but I do like that line. It's a really nice reference to vampires and a nice bit of satire. She has a drinking problem due to her preference to human blood. <laughs> I love that line. Joe and Jeremy, they're then visited by someone looking for Kisserling. Oh, boy. Matt, you're familiar with this guy, right? You have oh, to be. Yeah, it's hard not to be. Uh, yes. Th this is sort of the adding spice to a McDonald's Happy Meal as far as quality goes. Samuel Fuller. Adam, are you familiar with the name Samuel Fuller? Can't say that I am. Samuel Fuller was a World War II veteran, but he went on to do... It would be safe to say that he was the Larry Cohn of his day, Matt? The precursor. But unlike yeah. Cohen, a lot of Fuller's stuff was reevaluated once he got to like the late sixties to the point where Martin Scorsese gave him props about his camera movement. And mm -hmm. both took Tarantino 
and uh, Jim Jarmusch have talked about what an influence he was. Yeah. So he made a definite impact. And for people who look for low-budget filmmaking from back then, yeah, he was definitely a pioneer of then. Because, as you said, Matt, he was an auteur, kind of like Larry Cohn was, huh? Yeah. Was Obi-Wan say from a certain point of view? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Jeremy tells him that he wouldn't know what a Dutch sound, what a Dutch accent sounds like. <laughs> Again, I have to say, there are lines in this that I do really chuckle at. Adam, are you smiling at all throughout the course of this? I have to take your pulse here. At this point, I wish that I could fast forward to this and keep my subtitles on so that I could get through this as quick as possible. Wow, you're yeah. not having any fun whatsoever. By this point, just shortly after the cows and everything else, I'm done. By now, I'm actually angry at this movie because of the performances as much as anything else. I'm angry that it took the possibility of an idea and is just put to film so poorly. Listeners, send me $3 that I need back for what I put into this film. <laughs> like, I am, by this point, I am mad. And I swear, I'm checking the time left every two minutes. Matt, I get the feeling you're having a little more fun than Adam is here. Kind of hard to be having any less fun. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> they send Van Meer on his way as they head to the school, and Amanda won't stop giving Jeremy the peering eye. They are told that vampires are forever, and Jeremy is told of drones, which are bred for service. Again, what a cool concept. Human servants for vampires. This is great. I, I love the concept. Yeah, well, it's also not entirely exclusive. That comes from Dracula. No, of course. That comes from Dracula, absolutely. You know what does this better, speaking of schlock, the first Blade movie? <laughs> oh, geez, we'll get to that eventually. Yeah, I thought they were going to specifically call them Renfelds, because that's what they are. The idea that they, yeah, bred their own people to take care of them during the day. Sweet. On the surface, it's a good idea. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I delivered that with all the acting enthusiasm that the performers in this film do as well. <laughs> Joe wants to take Jeremy away from what he calls anti-human propaganda. But he's convinced to let him stay. It's fake, it's fake news. Jeez, <laughs> we're bringing that up again. Meanwhile, Joe and Kathy, they go into the woods on a carriage, and we get some boobs here as Trollface shows up to watch. <laughs> hey, we got some boobs, Adam. You must be liking that. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. There you go. That's an impression we, of me, too. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to black and Jeremy laughing as Joe comes in and asks what's happening to him. Jeremy says he will serve better in the image of a child. Oof. Jeremy tells Joe that sunlight hurts his eyes and he can't sleep. He says he has to do it, and Joe gives him a pair of sleeping pills. It gives Jeremy him aspirin, not sleeping pills. Oh, I thought that was sleeping pills. Uh, you're right. It he was gives him aspirin to act as sleeping pills because he didn't get proper direction on what they were. <laughs> okay. Jeremy conks out, and Joe carries him to the woods, trying to run away. Why not just get in the car and leave? <laughs> I know. But a fight emerges in a creek. <laughs> Beats one to death with a rock and is then knocked into the water as the sun goes down and Jeremy yells for him to help him. And Adam, you are sighing, sir. I do. Oh, fucking A. This is just... (laughs) (laughs) It looks so bad. It's shot so bad. The punches aren't even landing correctly. I know. He's a rocky him with a rock and it's not even touching him. Like <laughs> Axel wakes Joe up, obviously angry that Joe tried to run, and Kathy emerges to say she's pregnant with Joe's child. <laughs> <laughs> Axel says soon Jeremy will be reborn, making it an eye for an eye situation. Joe says he'll kill all of them if they take Jeremy from him. 
but he's being held to his end of the bargain, which is writing their Bible. He learns that the vampires there have land everywhere with zero government dollars to help them. Yeah, they're creating their own here. Hey, religion. There you go. Well, I like that they don't have to work because they make so much money off real estate living for hundreds of years. Exactly. Yeah, so Lex Luthor plot. <laughs> that was last month, Adam. Last month. Joe learns that Axel has a true face that he hasn't seen yet. We see Joe walking and spotting Jeremy on top of the hill, but as he runs to him, Jeremy disappears. Joe then learns from Clarence that he is exactly what Jeremy is going to be. He drives Van Meer back to his place, and we cut to Jeremy, who finds Van Meer, and he tells Van Meer that there's a school teacher who looks like the guy he's looking for. Jeremy says he's still at the school, which Joe feels is a trap. And I gotta say, once Joe and Van Meer team up, I'm back with this, because I cannot get enough of Samuel Fuller in this movie. The way he acts in this movie, and the acting, I know, is stretching it, but I just love his line deliveries, and just the way he just kind of looks into nothingness. Oh, positively. When this becomes Fright Night with... Yes. Basically, he's Roddy McDowell. Uh-huh. If he wasn't a fraud in a certain way. This is unrepentant fun. And I kind of wish this was the whole movie of just them going door-to-door selling fake Girl Scout cookies and then opening the coffins to get inside and just... <laughs> And they they never miss every time. And these are also the slowest reacting vampires because they open the coffin, wait five seconds. It's not enough that you stab them directly. You have to place it over their heart and then hit it with the hammer. So it yeah. takes even longer. Like I'm having a blast at this. I am too. Good, actually. No, but it's definitely more entertaining than a lot of the Stephen King stuff we've watched. The other ongoing plot of Van Meer looking for Kisserling because he's a Nazi hunter, is fucking... I'm laughing. Adam, you're not laughing at this point? I want to be because I'm enjoying what he brings to it, but I'm just so turned off by everything that got me here that I can't re-engage with the movie. It just already lost me, and I just, like, I just wanted it. Don't put me out of my misery. He brings a level of, like, if you're not going to act well, act fun. And I will agree that he brings that. He has one of my favorite line readings. With, I was like, oh, she's downstairs. It's like, where's that bitch at? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I can't bring myself to kill her. He's like, you might as well say, all right, you pussy. They go to a room where Van Meer sits Joe down, and he reads some of the Bible he's written. And then they head toward Banger in a very rickety, right-off-the-set-looking car rig. <laughs> they run into vampires on the road, which Van Meer either drives off the road or shoots off his window. Now, Adam, I'm going to assume that if this was made in a less amateurish way, you'd be going with it. But I think it's the amateur style that you're turned off to, isn't it? It is. It really is. Between the amateur shooting, editing, and acting. If it didn't feel like something that was done by some college kids trying to deliver something for a final, then I think I could at least be finding a way to enjoy myself. But it, it gotcha. literally, to me, does not feel like a professional production in any way. And I love how when they get this vampire off the window, it causes Jeremy to exclaim, shit, they're ugly. <laughs> that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> That's what you're talking about. They go to the church and hear police sirens. They find that the short line bus has been diverted to the center of town. We cut to Axel telling the passengers that there's been an accident and he needs the people to leave the bus in order to answer a few questions. Axel sends the vampires to the bus. As Jeremy looks on, Jeremy tells them that they sleep under the school. 
And Van Meer gets from Jeremy that disenchantment with vampire lore has set in, and Jeremy is not that lord into vampire lore anymore. So now Jeremy is, I guess, cured? Yeah, he went to Christian conversion therapy. <laughs> he went to conversion camp. There you go. <laughs> Joe wakes Van Meer up <laughs> to say they overslept. He tells Jeremy to stay in the church, and Jeremy asks, what about Kathy? Joe says that even though she's carrying his child, he can handle having to kill her. They head out, and we have an encounter brewing as the cop has been led to where they are by an untrusting woman. The vampires are staked, and they head to the coffins only to find out that they've been had. They go back to the barn and find another coffin. They open it up and stake the woman inside. This causes her to decompose right in front of them, so not a bad little effect here. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I love the melting effects. The cop shows back up, and Van Meer pretends that he's grabbed, and then he shoots him. And then when Joe asks what grabbed him, Van Meer replies, nothing, but it sure looked good. Oh, my God, Samuel Fuller's killing me in this. It's he's so also the only person, though, who seems to understand continuity because he gets caught in the yes. bear trap and does yeah. walk around with a limp for the rest of the movie. Yeah, I noticed that, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We cut to more shots being fired as Joe takes out two more townspeople. Amanda shows back up in a wedding dress, trying to convince Jeremy to go with her. In there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, more vampires are killed. Joe tells Van Meer that he can't finish it, as now they're in her house. Van Meer is then caught in a bear trap, as Matt said, as he yells for Joe. But vampires rise, and Van Meer shoots them. Joe shows up to release the trap as he throws holy water on the two awakened vampires. And then Van Meer and Joe, they run from the house, as Axel doesn't seem too disturbed by recent events. After being told what's going on, he just urges Sarah to let them rest. Joe and Van Meer, they torch a house as they run to the school. And I love these torching effects because you see Amanda, a.k.a. Tara Reid, go to the coffin and literally go and sit down and then get out of it. <laughs> the amateurist stuff going on here is fucking classic. Yeah, I was admiring that someone watched this and said, all right, we don't have to do a second pass. Going back to that editing that Adam called out. They are surrounded by vampires as Axel emerges and says they won't attack unless he says so. He then opens Jeremy's coffin saying it's showtime. Joe tries convincing him that they don't have power over him as Axel grabs a stake. But as he raises it, Van Meer shoots him in the head. But he then takes his own life as Joe tells all Axel's followers that they'll fry if they don't leave. Jeremy's yelling that he's not dead as they make their way out. Kathy is burned by holy water as they run toward a worms and crawler shop with coffins and burn it to the ground. <laughs> Matt, I'm with you, dude. I would have taken these two going around doing this for the entire movie. Absolutely. Especially yeah. with how ineffective these vampires are. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. They burn all the coffins as Amanda sets herself in one to burn, as I mentioned earlier. Joe stakes another vampire as he confronts Clara about why she brought them here. And then Joe and Jeremy, they run into a shed, and Joe says that they'll stay there till sundown, in which they will either be dead or in their coffin. But Axel emerges with his true face, and oh boy, what a face that is. <laughs> I love the makeup effects in this. <laughs> he confronts Joe, he throws him, and then grabs Jeremy. When he goes after Joe again, Jeremy grabs a very clean American flag <laughs> and plunges it right through Axel, killing him on the spot. <sighs> If there is something more American than killing a vampire with an American flag, please tell it to me. I wanted someone to add the Team America music as this happened. This was, <laughs> there's nothing more American than us taking a European icon and staking our claim on it 
as our own, <laughs> using our own device. This might as well have been like if you set this during the American Revolution. <laughs> like all the all the all the red coats were vampires, and this is how you end the movie. I fucking love this. <laughs> I do too. It it cracks me up. <laughs> it's like, all right, I can't believe we're gonna do that, but yeah, you kind of see it coming, and it pays off. You saw them stabbing him with an American flag, really? <laughs> well, the, no, like you get the glimpse of the flag as it's coming. You're like, gotcha. okay, I see what they're. Yeah. They set another fire as we cut to the next day. There's chaos in the streets when Van Meer shows up in a bus, and the line Joe gives here is great. You have more lives than a vampire. (laughs) Vampires show up around the bus just as the sun comes up and burns them all to death, which I thought was kind of cool. Joe says they can't find them all, to which Van Meer says he thinks they'll all choose to die together. They drive by some tagged cows as credits roll on, oh boy, return. To Salem's Lot. Scale of 1 to 10, what do you boys give a return to Salem's Lot? Much like Superman 3, I'm going to give Adam time to load up his ammo. Matt, you go ahead and go, sir. I don't know how the hell to score this, to be perfectly honest, because I sort of put this in the same camp as something like Maximum Overdrive. Not just because it's as obscene and arguably poorly constructed as that movie is, but I got such enjoyment out of this. I would gladly watch this again. This might join something like Maximum Overdrive as something that I would not praise as high art, but would be like when you get your buddies around and say, you want to watch a bad movie and have a few drinks and just laugh? I'd probably pop this in maybe around Halloween. Would I get any friends to show up or still be friends with me after it was done? Who knows? I have to say, for a sequel to a Stephen King property that I wasn't enamored with to begin with, I enjoyed this more than the three hours of Salem's Lot. It was half the time and twice the entertainment. Certainly got twice the laughs. But it's also poorly made. So I'm going to give it the same score I gave Maximum Overdrive. It's a five because it's very entertaining. It's not high art. But I don't feel it ever aspired to be. There's some interesting points and pieces that Larry Cohen is known for. But all in all... It's not elite. It's not really something that I can recommend unless you are someone like me who has a propensity for this kind of schlock. So five? Yeah, I think I'm going to land on a five. Five out of ten from Mr. Goudreau. Adam Bunch, I'm going to make the assumption that you're going to go lower than a five. You could, uh, let me see, over over, under. Let's see how that goes. Well, (laughs) this, on the bright side, last movie was just over three hours. This one's hour 40, hour 35 for a mid-80s vampire movie. Should be right up my alley. It's going to be schlocky. It's going to have the occasional nudity in it. It's going to have a lot of blood. I really wish that I found anything to like in this film, though, because it's it takes me out from the very beginning. That opening scene on whatever that heart fucking ripping out scene ripoff was from Indiana Jones, like, I thought that was going to be like them making a movie and you were taking a director away. I didn't realize that was supposed to be real for this thing. And the rest of the movie just continues the nosedive from there. It has a very interesting premise that this town is already overrun by vampires and Renfield's running it. But, I mean, I still can't even understand why we're returning to Salem's Lot. At the end of the day, the filming is amateur, would be generous. The writing is pedestrian, but the acting... The acting is so a small-town community theater level that I can't enjoy it because these are actual actors. They get paid to do this, and I cannot believe just how 
amateur this entire thing feels. You know what came out this exact same year and is a vampire movie? Is fucking The Lost Boys. The exact same year as this movie. Technically, this is a theatrical film. You tell me that this is some schlock that's put on a direct-to-VHS, maybe I look at it differently, but, man, I am angry that I had to watch this movie. I don't know how I'm expected to sit through ten frickin' Children of the Corns thinking that half of them are probably going to be this level. I, Man, I was so angry by the end of it that it was just... Like, it doesn't belong in Hollywood. The people in this should be embarrassed that this actually got finished. It's a one, and I think I'm being generous. I just, I had a visceral, unfun time watching this entire thing. (laughs) Matt, he flat out said it doesn't belong in Hollywood. (laughs) Oh, Adam, I love you so much, sir. Yeah, you know what? (laughs) Believe it or not, I'm stuck right between you two. I can't look at this and say it's a great movie because it's by no means a great movie it's by no means a good movie but it's one of those movies that that the more i think about it the more i I think of another movie we're going to be talking about later on this year a quote-unquote movie and that is the second ewok adventure movie which was made by a couple people who really disdained the first ewok adventure movie and that was their response to that movie was to make it about as violent and visceral as you could get for a, <laughs> a movie intended for kids. And we'll get to that when we get to that film. And I felt the same exact way here, where this was made by Larry Cohn, who is somebody who, again, was not a big fan of Salem's Lot, the movie, although he did like the book. And he just came out to make something that kind of rebelled against that, while also injecting some of his own ideas that he had in that script. How this was greenlit, I have no idea, especially after people had turned him down for it. But I'm not going to lie. I am kind of more on Matt's side here where this movie if you think about it in terms of yes it's amateurish yes it's ridiculous yes it's poorly acted but if you just take it at every turn and you kind of go with it you can have a good time with this especially if you know Samuel Fuller like as soon as he shows up in this movie I was aching for it because at that point I was like okay we're getting some weird vampire action here it's not really action I need a jump start Samuel Fuller was the jump start for me but it's not a very good movie. I am landing on a 4 out of 10 for this movie. But it's probably the highest scoring 4 out of 10 I'm ever going to give. Because if you can go with an amateur And believe me, over the years, I have been involved with the making of some pretty amateurish films. Some of this will resonate with you. And I think you can have a good time with it. But if you're like Adam, you're putting this on, expecting that mid-80s vampire flair that we got from the lost boys a series we might cover in the future then you're going to be as shit out of luck yeah it's a four out of ten for me all right so we have put the larry Cohn version of satan's lot behind us next week we are reviewing the 2004 version starring somebody who had a career resurgence 10 years before with another stephen king miniseries the stand rob lowe starring in the role that was done by David Soul in the first movie. Adam, you came out of this very, very angry. What are you expecting next week with Salem's Lot 2004? Um, you know what? I would hope that it would have kind of the ideas of this, but told in a more professional manner, and I think I would go with it. I mean, something, it's, it's weird. I thought about it as you, as you were going through yours. Give me Samuel in a pre-credit sequence or an opening sequence so that I have somebody that I'm going to be anticipating later, and I could get through the crap. And have some fun and not be checked out. I don't know. I mean, Rob Lowe, he seems destined for made for TV. I don't even see him as a, as a movies kind of guy. So as long as it doesn't screw the pooch on, you know, telling the story, I still think there's a good Salem's Lot 
idea to be filmed. So, I mean, this one here had a good idea, and I would like to see I would like to see a good idea brought to fruition. And I'm hoping that's what we get. Good job. I know next to nothing outside of Rob Lowe and TNT, which is a combination that does not entice me, nor does the fact that this is yet another three-hour commitment that I have to devote myself to. <laughs> oh, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, yeah this is one of those, it's in the fine print within the fine print sort of Faustian bargains we had to make to do this retrospective. I do know one other thing that it is updated to modern, at the time, modern day. But looking at the poster of this Rob Blow with this ridiculous haircut, I am not very excited to watch this. <laughs> and I did look at who the director is, Miguel Salomon. He's got an interesting track record on TV, so that does give me a little bit of hope. But Stephen King and Made for TV don't always go hand in hand for me. But sometimes they do. And I seem to remember kind of liking this when it originally aired. Now, to be fair, I haven't watched it since its original airing on TNT all those years ago. So it's going to be another official revisit, but something I don't hardly remember at all. So it'll be almost like watching it for the very first time. But I do remember kind of liking it way back when. I'm interested to revisit it. And that'll be next week's review. At the time we recorded this, we're supposed to still be getting the new Salem's Lot, which is supposed to come out at the end of this month. But in case it doesn't come out and the three of us haven't heard anything, I haven't seen one publicity sale for it. I haven't seen one trailer for it. It's supposed to be a theatrical release. In case it doesn't come out, don't worry. That week will not be empty because the three of us do have a plan. And I think it's a very good plan that will hold you over until that particular film comes out. But until next week, when we leave Larry Cohn land and actually return to Salem's Lot, with 2004 Salem's Lot. I'm not a Nazi hunter. I'm a Nazi podcaster. Thank you, gentlemen. There's a presence in that house. I don't know if you can feel it. Oh, I can feel it. I felt it before when I was... A boy and I went inside, I thought it was me, I thought it was some manifestation of my own fear. It wasn't. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. I'll never forget it. Please join us next week for an entirely new review. Evil comes from inside of all of us. And if you'd like to hear the boys talk about the film adaptations of Carrie and The Shining, please head over to www.bingemedia.net and click the Aftertaste tab. They were very close friends. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. This is a good town, a good community. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. You're sure it wasn't a dream? Edited by Garrett. I didn't do anything wrong. Voiceovers by Adam. If we burn them out, they'll have nowhere to hide. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues 
are used as such. Nothing to sink your teeth into. See you around, neighbor. Around, around what? Yeah, around. You and I can have long discussions. We'll have heated debates deep into the night. It seemed like they stopped whatever vampire plague was happening when they killed off Barlow. So if you're looking for continuity, this movie's going to fucking suck for you. Say that one more time. If you're looking for continuity as a direct sequel, this is not the movie for you. Salem's Lot to Sharknado 5. <laughs> yeah, right? That's about an arc. Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> Do not make fun of that movie. Um, I'm just kidding. I've never seen it. Joe, letting the wrong head do the talking, agrees to go. <laughs> well, Jer- well, Jeremy... The, 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 I'm the, sorry, Jeremy. You're right. You're right. I had yeah. that wrong. Jeremy, letting the wrong head do the talking, agrees to go. Because these vampires, they're played as more sophisticated, which is kind of the Mori- uh, not Moriarty, Cohen kind of commenting on turning vampires into a... Where it's like, yeah, we were perceived by monsters, but we just, you know, we were persecuted like you guys were. And I love how the reason why they hate churches and crosses is because they were persecuted by Puritans. <laughs> you need to answer that, Matt? Is that you who's ringing or is that Matt Adam? I heard a phone ringing. Oh, I I just put my, my phone on silent. Okay. Joe was then taken to a room containing Kathy, a woman he had an affair with as a teenager. Is this Kathy or is this Carla? I can't remember. Which one was this? I think it's Kathy. Is this Kathy? Okay. Um, but this Take... brings up a very irky question. Jeremy says he will serve better in the image of a child. Oof. Are sure Jeffrey Epstein did produce this movie? <laughs> oh, 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 Jesus Christ. I knew I shouldn't have paused then. <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> Adam, you came out of this very, very angry. What are you expecting next week with Salem's Lot 2004? I got some pretty low expectations. Really? Why? Yeah. Because you didn't like the first movie? Rob Lowe. I got some low expected crickets. Oh, God damn Don't it. worry, I laugh. I laugh. Oh, tip your waitress. Fuck, I did, so I folks, did not. Tip your waitress. Did not <laughs> wow. Um, 